Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Ian Pollock, your familiar stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, Schools of Culture, History and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology at Australian National University, and the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. And let me say thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. You know, the uptake on this podcast has been really great. Feedback from around the world fills all of us here with excitement and terror and pride and anxiety but we're in it now. You know, our voices are out there. And like it or not, you are in it with us. And we're all in this anthropology community together. So reach out, say hi, find us at thefamiliarstrange.com or tweet at us at TFSTweets. Now, on to my conversation with Depeche Chakrabarty, who is the Lawrence A. Kimpton Distinguished Service Professor of History, South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Now, distinguished how? He's given a lot of distinguished lectures. He's won a lot of distinguished prizes. He's distinguished by getting his PhD at ANU, actually, as I hope to myself, hopefully this year. He's one of those scholars who seems like his work has just reached into every corner of the humanities, and that includes anthropology. That's what we were talking about today, the conversation between history and anthropology. I caught Dr. Chakrabarty after a book discussion here at ANU on Elizabeth Pavanelli's book, Geontologies, A Requiem to Late Liberalism. Unfortunately, the only day he was free to talk was the day before our good microphones arrived, so the sound quality is not quite what I'd like it to be, but whatever. So we had fun. We covered a lot of ground, but the thrust of this was about the politics of knowledge production. We talk about how research, both as a product and a concept, is basically colonial, and how the general knowledge that we're supposed to be in conversation with when we publish is a, a Western general. We talk about how the West is creating its own intellectuals everywhere how technology and power make cultural reproduction expensive. So small or poor societies that want to preserve their heritages are propelled by the need for resources into the globalized world. And somehow we talk about a special class of kinship that's the kin that you can eat. How do we get there? Anyway, here it is, my conversation with Depeche Chakrabarty. One of the most popular forms of written history is the biography, isn't it? One of the most popular underlying forms <laughs> of history is indeed biography, and particularly uh, in the West, yeah. So which is why bookshops in airports have a separate section devoted to biography. And bi biography uh, films are another popular means through which history is consumed, turned out. And sometimes historians rile at the kind of, professional historians, rile at the kind of, particularly at, the, at, at films. So when um, Hollywood started producing a lot of historical films. Around the 1930s, there was a historian at the University of Chicago called Louis Gottschalk, and he wrote a letter to this Hollywood producer saying, if you're going to make a historical, make sure that a historian vets it. <laughs> <laughs> How often do you think they do that? No, I mean, I think historians lost that battle, <laughs> but they still decry. I mean, the American Historical Review used to have a section. It was called Film and History. And the main burden of most of the writing and comments in that section was to point out how certain films were historically inaccurate. The problem is if you make a film, you want people to enjoy it. 
So, and history is not that enjoyable. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, history can be enjoyable, but in the very process of making something enjoyable, you create a storyline that has to keep its tension. So there's a see, life is not always enjoyable. You have to make a story out of lived experiences to to write history. That story has to be enjoyable. Right. So the and, the writing of history has narrative constraints right. that are not always the same as what actually happened. Right. Right. They force well, you to exactly. And but also when you make a film, then because films are expensive to make. So you have to make sure that a lot of people actually <laughs> right. watching it. So, for instance, uh, Natalie Davis, the famous, actually one of the historians of our times, well known for to have had an intellectual conversation with anthropology. She wrote a book on on basically on, on history and history in films. I think it was called History on Screen or something like that. You know, slaves on screen. And she has a pages of criticism of the film Amistad. The historian she keeps saying. Whatever, if you, you can make a film about the past, you can make a play about the past, you can write history, but but let the past be the past. Don't confuse it with present. Whereas uh, when you're writing history or creating filmic histories for popular consumption, you have to make sure that there's repeat purchase. People come back and people send others back. <laughs> and therefore you have to make sure that it has certain kind of resonances right. with problems in the present, right? And then that sometimes introduces an element into your history which many historians are wary of and call it presentism. Presentism? Yeah. So one famous historian, I, I can't name him because it's not in writing. He told me this. Okay. But let me give you the quotation as I remember it. He, he said to me once, he said, your questions obviously come out of the present because you are living in the present. But the answers must come out of the past. Hmm. <laughs> Right. So, a, a critique of pre- presentism. I was just looking back over your biography a little bit, preparing right. for this interview. I saw also a critique of historicism. Right. And I wonder if you could uh, compare those two terms for me. So, presentism is the problem of looking, not just asking questions about the past, questions that come out of your present. I think that's inescapable. A man who lived in a slaveholding society might not ask the kind of questions of slavery that you or I might ask, right? But on the other hand, doing history ideally is like doing anthropology of people who are gone, uh, except that you don't have native informant, you don't, you only have these written fragmentary sources. But the same hermeneutic struggle goes on. You're trying to understand somebody from their point of view, at least in humanistic history. You might do economic history, it's different. If you do history of capitalism or 500 years, nobody lives for 500 years. So <laughs> that's already a different kind of construction. Right. So, so that struggle, which is also in anthropology. So what in anthropology you might call an unwanted intrusion of your own framework of understanding into your understanding of the native's framework or the, or the subject's framework, and thereby your portrayal of the subject you're studying getting colored. So in a way, you're actually revealing yourself by what you write? Or you're just discovering yourself. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, historians also have the same danger. Uh, except that it happens, it's happening with respect to people who are dead, so they can't even talk back. I mean, in your case, somebody uh, in the group that you're working on may be able to read your book and may come and say, hey, you got that wrong. Mm. You know, but, And I uh, live in expectation of that day. Right. Whereas as a historian, these people can't come back and say, you got us wrong. So it's only another historian who might say you got them wrong because you didn't look at this thing or you mm-hmm. looked at it from too much from our present concerns. So there is always this problem, but I think it's a shared problem between anthropology and history. Mm-hmm. 
so that's presentism. Whereas historicism is the way, the sense in which I used it in my work. Um, so I was partly criticizing the idea, an idea of things where you assume that a thing always develops, a thing or a society or an entity or an abstract entity like capitalism or that it is, it both remains the same from the beginning to the end as well as develops into what it becomes. <laughs> so that it's like, it's at any point of time, even though it's changing, you know that it's capitalism in spite of all the changes. So some other structure so, like a religion, for instance? Yeah, so I was kind of, I was sort of critiquing that assumption of continuity. Uh, of some fixed identity in spite of all the changes. So I was trying to argue that that may well be our own projection onto something. And so allied to that was also the idea that, uh, therefore, that uh, that you can recognize in a third world country things that are familiar to you from their previous incarnations in a developed country. So, for instance, historians would often write books with titles like The First Industrial Revolution. What does that refer to? Well, the British Industrial Revolution. All right. And then right. the second... Meaning that whatever comes after is somehow a repetition with some modifications of that original... Model. That already happened in that England. It's just now happening yeah. in the next exactly. place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this idea that capitalism has already happened in the West, we know what it looks like, so we know when it's being exported to other places. I was also criticizing that kind of a diffusionist... Right, and a very developmental, and very developmental kind of teleological exactly. structure so in some as well. Ways, yeah. Historicism, in my use, was some kind of a developmentalist approach to things. Is that something that you still run into, that uh, developmentalist approach? I think it's implicit in everyday discourses. How so? When people say China is catching up with the West, it would China, the China, China will be our US in the next century. So we see this as kind of... Or when we say China, the Chinese are becoming capitalists, so we assume that we already know what we mean by capitalists, and that's spreading. So it's part of everyday life and everyday language. I'm not saying you should give it up, that language, because obviously it's useful, so people use it. More a matter of becoming aware of its limitations. So that it's just an analytical tool, right? It's just a tool to think with. Yeah, and, and like any other analytical tool, it's got its problems. So. But as I always say to people, you know, critique is not rejection. Critique is not rejection? No. Critique is being aware of the flaws of the approach that you might otherwise find useful. So a critique of Marxism is not a rejection of Marxism. It's simply an acknowledgement that it's not perfect or God-given. There does seem to be a divide sometimes between scholars who treat a particular theory as an actual reflection of the world and those who treat it as just a tool to think with. Right. There's a big divide. And even uh, among Marxists, some people would think that Marxism describes accurately what happens in the world, and some people think would think it gives us a good heuristic, it gives us a good model with which to approximate. People say that it not only describes reality. but predicts. Yeah, I mean, like so, so, so you know what happens is this is a theory I have, which is that all disciplines basically work with implicit models. Okay. Uh, the more formal a discipline is, the more explicit the models are. So if you study economics then economists would often produce models which have predictive capacity. But they'll tell you it's a model. They'll tell you these are the things we've assumed away. This is not reality. Reality is much more messy than this model. But if you read history or anthropology, then these are not very formalized disciplines. They don't quantify. They don't. So there's often, uh, in the very writing, there is a rhetoric of very similitude that that I'm almost reproducing the reality. 
I think you've said that history's non-technical nature is something that leaves it vulnerable to public pressure. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I did in one of my recent books. Yeah, in the sense that... Uh, so the argument there was that every discipline requires some training, which I call as the, the threshold of the discipline, or let's say the bar that a discipline puts up. And that's the distinction professional historians would make between themselves and the popular biographers who are selling at airports. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and... Popular biographers might make a lot more money than the professional historian. <laughs> Nobody reads. That's not the reason their... we went into this business. <laughs> right. But they'll hold on to their little pride. <laughs> right. but, but any discipline says to its prospective practitioner, you must get your passport somewhere. You know, do this. Then you then we recognize you. So you might get an MA in history or MPhil or whatever. And uh, in the more formal disciplines, you have to go through a process of learning a set of techniques, statistical tools or whatever in economics. Uh, you can't become an economist these days if you can't, you can't do statistics. Uh, whereas, in, whereas history is a field where the boundary is smudged because I might think that I'm a professional historian. That doesn't stop you or somebody else who's not in any history department to write a book <laughs> on a popular character. So what kind of, when it comes to being a historian, what kind of training did you get? So first of all, the basic training not just the precepts of the discipline, but how do you how do you work in the archives? How do you weigh one piece of evidence against another piece of evidence? How do you understand the fact? Do facts come ready-made or do are facts actually what you get to after you've interrogated a number of documents? So you've got learning some theories. Learning some, some understanding of what the analytical process is. Then actually the processes of doing archival work. Archival work. Now think about doing histories of not the modern period, but let's say a period where you have to use an ancient form of a language. Okay, yeah. Then it becomes a little technical. You might learn the language, but then you have to read it on old paper, you know, where the ink is almost drying up. Those are things that you have to learn to do. They take time. Then if you're doing longer term history, like if you're doing archaeology or prehistory, then, of course, some of it becomes scientific because you have to learn how to date things. It feels like the, the bio-anthropologists and archaeologists here are always talking about things like uh, isotope levels in tooth exactly. enamel. isotope levels or pollen, pollen dating, yeah. radio dating. So uh, when you go to that branch of that end of anthropology, you'll find people have labs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And then there it becomes, there are certain aspects of the discipline and they get fun toys to play with that the rest yeah, of us don't exactly. get. Yeah, So the, and also it becomes a little more technical. So history, like narrative history in that sense, has some... Historians would love to think that not everybody is a historian, but it's very hard to maintain that threshold. But depending on how formal and how technical you get, you know, the barriers are high or low, and I think history is a low-barrier discipline. Particularly narrative history. Again, if you go into economic history, if you go into archaeology, there are aspects, or you know, where you have to actually read old documents. Right. Uh, it it becomes more difficult. But suppose you're writing about you know Washington or a popular character that everybody wants to read about. The old biographies have been forgotten. Anybody with some in writing capacity and interest in you know reading records and creating connecting interest in story will do it. Right. They will, for instance mix interviews, oral interviews, with written evidence. Whereas mm -hmm. within the discipline proper... That was in hash marks for those of you listening at home. Proper, yeah. uh, there's a lot of debate about actually, is oral history really history? Is oral history really history? Yeah. Because what because the big difference is that 
when you go to an archival document, the document is still coming from its own period. You might put a question to the document, but you have not collaborated with the writer of the document in writing the document. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I interview you or you interviewing me and you, if you ask me about something in my past, what I give you is what I produce now. My memory is at work. And right. My memory has, may have problems. So, so whatever we, the event was, the narration is produced in the moment. Is the moment, and therefore we're both in the moment. So your evidence is produced in the very moment that you're asking the question in. It sounds like anthropology then. It's a bit like a bit more like anthropology. So so that's where there's a lot of interesting debate mm -hmm. among historians as to the differences between oral history and history. Quote unquote, proper. <laughs> <laughs> so you brought up earlier uh, an Indian man who's here and writing uh, a history of, of Australia. Wants to write a history. Wants to write a history of Australia in his own language, which would be an Indian language. An Indian language. Yeah, I'm just just not giving away too much about his yeah, sure. identity. Yeah. My question is, of course, as a reader, I'm almost entirely limited to things in English. Yeah. Writers in English have no compunction about writing about any other country in the world, but I have very little sense of the kinds of histories that are being written of places like America and Australia in other languages for people in other uh, in other countries, for instance, in the in the third world, the developing world, the global south, yeah. whatever the way is to refer yeah. to post-colonial countries. Is that a large movement? Is that growing? Is it changing? Depending on the country, I, I assume that a lot more people would take interest in U.S. history and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Do you have much connection with historians in India working on American issues? There aren't that many good historians in India working on American issues. See, one problem, of course, is that third world countries often don't have the resources to produce high-level studies of U.S. or Australian history because it means collecting records, investing money, giving scholarships that actually allow people to travel to these countries, mm -hmm. uh, do work in their archives. By definition, expensive. Yeah, it really struck me, you know, with my own fieldwork going to Indonesia yeah. with an Australian scholarship, I had more money than Compared the regent. To, exactly. You yeah. know, I had more money than high-level public servants in it's my town. It's very true. It's very true. So you realize uh, how uneven the world of scholarship is. Yeah. And how uneven the world of knowledge is. And whether people see it or not, I actually think that Western societies have their own concerns. Uh, so suppose you're studying Indonesian history, mm -hmm. but you're an Australian person very involved in the politics of same-sex marriage. Okay. Now, when you go, go and study Indonesia, you're not going to compartmentalize your mind and say the bit of my mind that is influenced by that debate will not talk to the, my mind that to the other bit that's looking at Indonesia. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all together. So in the end, and over a long run, whether you're studying Indonesia or... I mean, Japan or Burma, I mean, we assimilate these things back into the larger concerns mm -hmm. of the societies we live in. So you bring them back and put them on these busy streets of intellectual traffic. Well, in the end, when you do your thesis and you have to defend it, you have to defend it in terms of what it contributes to the general understanding of anthropology. Mm -hmm. And that general understanding of anthropology or history is, in the end, more Western <laughs> Without question. <laughs> yeah. So even though we think of it as general, but the general is a Western general. So what happens is, because of this unevenness of resources, these poorer countries actually have a tough time coming to understand themselves. Their students get scholarships, go out and 
immerse themselves, like I did, into these general discussions. But the general discussions are Western. So I actually think sometimes that the West is producing its own intellectuals everywhere in the world, except that in some places they go to go, they grow up with non-Western languages, with poorer libraries and uh, worse facilities. In other places they have the better facilities. These structures of privilege and underprivilege, uh, they have an impact on scholarship and on knowledge. And given the forms of knowledge that we produce and value. So, I mean, so there, you could always imagine a time where uh, the West didn't know about Aboriginals and Aboriginals didn't know about the West. Mm-hmm. So whatever they thought of was of knowledge was valuable in their own society and, it, and that was fine. And what was knowledge in, say, Renaissance Florence would have remained in Florence, though this is how West is expanding. So what happens is that these other peoples like Aboriginals or in, who can't keep the West off cannot escape the fate of having their knowledge systems somewhat inferiorized. So not only nations or peoples that get to colonize the rest of the world, but they get to bring their ideas with them as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's some exchange, but you have to realize that the exchange is loaded. It's not an equal exchange. Plus, the West eventually created a very potent combination that appealed to anybody who loved power, which is that they combined knowledge with power. And therefore, wherever there were elites or chiefs or people who were actually interested in having power in their own society, they often formed alliances with Western powers, got their guns or whatever. So when you say knowledge, you're talking about technology? Technology, uh, organizational knowledge, all sorts of things. But, uh, but what I'm saying is that the world you inhabit as a researcher the idea of research, the idea of university, the idea of a discipline, the idea of a seminar. So these are Western ideas that have had the opportunity to become universalized. And, but through the process of the expansion of the West. Right. It's not, but they're not pure imposition. I think they also have their attractions. Philippe Descola tells a story of um, going to Paraguay, I think, studying the people he studied, staying with a couple. And um, a man comes home, he's been out hunting monkeys, and he comes home having been bitten by a snake. And they all think that uh, the snake bite is a punishment for uh, not using a bow and an arrow to hunt monkeys, but a gun that hmm. he had come upon. So a punishment for using the wrong technology, for using an well, for being Because monkeys are some kind of keen connections who could be eaten So in their classification. but <laughs> That's an unusual classification, yeah, kin well, that can be eaten. Sometimes you wish. <laughs> but using a gun meant he killed more monkeys mm-hmm. at one go and therefore expressed greediness. And therefore the snake bite was a punishment. And he was destined to die because there was poison in mm-hmm. the bite. And Descola, who is an anthropologist who explains this system for you, was there carrying with him an anti-venom serum. <laughs> Which saved the man's life. Okay. Now, that now does fundamentally change the story, doesn't it's, it? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Because here is the serum that's even more powerful than the punishment <laughs> of being greedy. So that's why I'm saying I'm not. They had their attraction. They're not. People were not foolish to embrace some of these Western systems.
when you were growing up in India, there must have been other more indigenous forms of scholarship that you could have taken part of other than the Western university system, right? Were you ever tempted by those? No, the pre-Western forms of indigenous scholarship have been dying on the vine for a long time. Oh, really? Yeah. There was, there was scholarship that was not properly university produced, say in Indian languages, independent scholars or amateur scholars, but they were very influenced by Western procedures. Like, for instance, the teaching of Sanskrit. Europeans reorganized it. They did? Yeah. So there was a revival of Sanskrit under Europeans, but it was now organized like you would the way you teach Sanskrit in a Western university. So you created syllabi, you created texts, you created exams, you created degrees, uh, which traditionally you would go to a guru's place <laughs> and stay and learn. All kinds of stories that one logician goes from one part of the country to another part where these sects were very keen that, that, that their system of logic did not travel. So this man goes... Wait, their system of logic didn't travel? It was only logical there? It wasn't logical in no, another no. place? There are different uh, philosophies of logic, different ways of doing logic. And these people then, who didn't want their knowledge to travel, so there's a kind of secrecy to that knowledge. I see. Lost it because a person from the other group impersonating himself as somebody else, got in and learned the whole thing by heart. He didn't write it down so that he would couldn't be caught. Came back. <laughs> now, these are stories about traditional knowledge, you know, how knowledge would travel. Whereas when, when the British came, they set up universities and people went to England and when they found that they had academies, royal societies... Mm-hmm. Uh, see, there are 17th century developments in Europe which influenced people. So particularly areas where there was already, unlike Samaritan society, literate societies, mm-hmm. where there was strong tradition of writing, argumentation, poetry writing, people also had curiosity about Western forms of knowledge. Um, and sometimes they embraced it willingly. Sometimes actually there's a very famous Sanskritist, Indian Sanskritist, on record as saying in the end of the 19th century, that I can't deny that the British or the Europeans study Sanskrit on a more scientific basis than we do. A more scientific basis? Than we do. So we should adopt their way of studying our language. So I'm not saying that European knowledge was an imposition. People saw its practical utility. People saw its intellectual attraction. So there was also curiosity within the European use of force. Um, but at the end of the day, for whatever reason, we have a world in which some education, as you know, has become increasingly more and more expensive. Oh, yeah. And therefore, more expensive societies can afford better versions of it than uh, less expensive societies. And that, that's that's a problem you're dealing with. But on the other hand, it's not like there's been globalization and travel and a lot of mixing of cultures, but it's still not like the cultures everywhere the same. I mean, Indonesia doesn't feel like Australia to you. Sure, not at all. Exactly. In spite of globalization. And that's true of everywhere. Yeah, the productive friction of different yeah, cultures coming so, together. So what happens is, therefore, these other forms of knowledge lose ground. And eventually people lose them. People often said to me in my field site, that I'd be asking old people for stories and myths and things right. like that. And they would tell me. And then they would scold the young people in the room. And saying, not, not knowing. That's right. And if you want to learn about our culture, you're going to have to buy this guy's book. Right. This outsider's book. He's going to know better than you. Right. So that doesn't... True. So, for instance, I mean, in the West, you will find very specific uh, courses in music school where they'll teach you pre-Renaissance ways of singing. Now, as it happened in India, people still sing without knowing it to be so, a 16th century song. It's part of the culture. But if Indians lose access to all that, 
they would need money to create such schools where, you know, such traditions of singing will have to be then archived, you'll have specialists to be trained for transmission. There's a whole infrastructure. So there's a whole infrastructure. So what happens is the Western societies are modeled on very expensive ways of transmitting culture. If you go to Indonesian society, if you go to Indian society, peasant societies, there's constant transmission going on. But it's not what is being transmitted doesn't cost much. Mm-hmm. Transmitting it doesn't cost much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to buy a fancy machine. Right. But, but development means making all of those things more expensive. And people go for that option because there are certain benefits to be had. Maybe the poor don't get those benefits, but the leaders do. Some Somebody gets the benefits and powerful enough to kind of influence others. It's interesting. I'm used to thinking of certain kinds of benefits becoming very expensive, such as getting better health or better education. But that idea of cultural transmission also becoming expensive, I hadn't but, thought of it. But that's, but think about it. Like If you have to produce records, mm-hmm. you would need a minimum market. If you don't have a market, you would need subsidies. Right. So in small cultures or poor cultures, cultures that look financially poor, mm-hmm. because of circumstances have to move over to these modern modes of transmission. That's when they find themselves cash trapped. And it's another it's another impetus into a different whole different labor arrangement, right. market That's arrangement to get those particular resources, resources that can't be obtained in a subsistence yeah. way. You can't grow money. Exactly. So that's the that, so in a way the world has moved in that. So all I'm saying is so concerns that are concerns that are more typical of the West then cast a much longer shadow on our understanding even of the non-Western world. Like if you think of memory studies and what has happened with memory. What has happened with memory? Well, I don't I mean, remember. It, so you you could distinguish memorials, right? Okay. Ways of remembering between what I call capital intensive ways of remembering. Okay. Less capital intensive ways of remembering. So, if you want to, if you have to remember the Holocaust through huge museums, Bollywood productions, then that's capital intensive. That's capital intensive. And what's a a non-intensive way? Something you'll find in in Indonesian villages, probably. You know, grandmother telling a story. Mm -hmm. And so, even they, they say with the memory of the Holocaust, there are less capital intensive ways of transmission, which is family stories. You know, my great uncle was in a concentration camp, or I lost my parents in a concentration camp. These are less capital-intensive ways of transmitting a story. And often, in traditional societies, that's how we transmitted them. Mm -hmm. Um, But when societies, for other reasons, feel that these methods are not adequate, they don't transmit enough, not enough people get to know, because families have... Young people are too absorbed in youth cultures, they don't talk to grandparents so much, grandparents go to old home, old age homes, or whatever... Then you go for these capital-intensive forms of transmission, right? And and globally, this puts those other kind of societies that are dependent on those cheaper forms of transmission mm-hmm. at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Because they will also be contending with those capital-intensive forms in and true they want to ca- copy direction, them. right? And, yeah, Radio, they, television. And then they want to copy them. And sometimes, uh, for instance, uh, when I was a student in Australia, I discovered that Part of the aid that Australia gave to some of the small island countries. So like the Solomons and... Yeah, I forget which ones. was, But the aid was spent on heritage. Heritage? Yeah, like national museums or excavating sites. See, they those societies had accepted a model of heritage, understanding of heritage, that needed more cash. Right. But they didn't generate the cash. So when Australia gave them aid, 
part of the aid was for education of their children in their own cultural heritage, but this was opting for a more expensive way of transmission. There must have been good reasons as to why they felt compelled to do this. But you could see that here is a model of transmission of heritage which is so expensive that you can't even do it without foreign aid coming in. Listen, there's something I wanted to get to. I know it doesn't follow from what we're just talking about. But uh, you were saying something the other day at a book discussion here at ANU about a liberal problem with the indifference to the number of humans that there are. So, for instance, talking about a rights-based regime, if everybody is going to have the same rights, it does matter how many people there are. Is that is that right? Or it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Okay, sorry. Can you clarify this for me? Yeah, well, I was sort of saying that... Uh a rights-based philosophy of human welfare. And that could be, you know, right to education, right to health, right to privacy, all sorts of things. Such a system of philosophy necessarily thinks of the human individual as the bearer and, and the receiver of these rights. Then we can talk about group rights. So you can talk about, let's say, rights that particular Aboriginal group might have, right? Protecting their language or... But sometimes actually group rights... Uh, have to be subordinated to the rights privilege in the Constitution. Um, if you have a group right that goes against constitutional rights, there's a legal problem. I'm giving an Australian example, an Aboriginal group to have, let's say, a system of punishment that goes against what the Australian Constitution says about punishment. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, there's a very interesting case here when I was a student. Um, somebody in some Aboriginal society had fallen foul of both Australian law, because they attacked somebody, Mm -hmm. and local Aboriginal law. So he was punished by the Australian law. So he did his term in jail, served his sentence. When he got out, the Aboriginal said, yeah, but that was white law punishing you. Our punishment is that we have to spear your leg. Somebody has to throw a spear through your leg. Uh, But obviously the Australian uh, legal system said, you can't do that, because our principle is that you can't be punished twice for the same crime. Right. So... So they were not allowed to... So in the eyes of Australian law, it would, it would have been illegal to spear him mm-hmm. in the leg again, right? So you can have group rights, but they can't be ultra-virus. They can't be completely against the rights mandated in the national constitution. Okay. Right. I mean, India has just had a um, judgment on those grounds made against Muslims. Really? Yeah. What was the judgment? Well, for a judgment was that the Muslims... Customary law allowed a Muslim man to divorce his wife just saying talaq three times. I did hear this, yeah. It's and, come up in Indonesia as well. I've, and I've heard courts, you can do it by text message even. Yeah, that's what they were doing. Email, text message. Uh, so the court ruled that it was against the constitution. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do it. So that's what I'm saying. So they, you can have group rights. But if the group rights contravene human rights, and human rights belong to individual humans, right? then the, most societies would not consider them legal. So I was saying that because the individual is so important in the philosophy of rights, including in human rights, at any point of time, you you are, as a political thinker, obliged to extend, to at least want to extend these rights to every individual on the planet, irrespective of how many individuals there are. Right, that's the aspiration. That's the aspiration. And that's why when rights-based philosophers are faced with the question, or confronted with the question, it's one, somebody, if somebody says, look, it was one thing to say this, that humans should have these minimum rights of flourishing, so minimum calorie intake or whatever. It was one thing to say this when there were three billion people on the planet. But now we have seven. Surely 
So meeting that minimal be, calorie requirement for twice as many people requires more than some, twice as much food. Have, yeah, must have some impact. And then their, their explanation, then their response would be, yes, but that can be done. They would go to some other argument. They would say, oh, but the population would taper off at 12 billion or something. And we know that technically the planet can feed them. So hmm. so they will in a way say... It's still kind of a technical optimism. Right. There's a, and you're raising a non-problem. But that's how they have to deal with it, because with, from within their way of thinking, there is no way of raising any questions about our being a dominant species, <laughs> our having become the, the chief predators on the planet, mm-hmm. or you know, our having been become the probably the most carnivorous animal on the planet. So I think you're bringing that up because people do like to sometimes extend that concept of rights beyond the human, right? To say right. that animals right. also have rights. Right. But so when they do that in the animal liberation framework, they extend it to individual animals. Right. Okay. They're also, they don't think, want to think about a species. Because rights don't extend to a species in the philosophy. But if you're an evolutionary biologist, then you might have a way of talking about it. You might actually be able to say, uh-huh, look at Homo sapiens. Came about, say, 200,000 years ago. And within five, six thousand years, or even shorter period, four hundred years, look at how their numbers have grown and look at what's happened since the Second World War. They have really become comfortable on the planet. And they're the first instance ever of a single species being found everywhere in the planet. Mm, all seven continents. It's the first instance. There's no other species like this. So if you thought like a biologist, you would have a language for speaking. Of right. Well, that. that language would be deeply problematic if you apply it to humans, right? Because you talk about species control. You talk about population right. control so and limiting to particular habitats. So, yeah. So I'm just, that's what I'm saying that, so because we are this, because we, if some other species was dominating, then they might say that about us, that mm-hmm. we need to control the species. Especially a so-called invasive species. Right. We might say, look at this invasive species going mm-hmm. everywhere, right? So because we somehow assume that we are the dominant species, a rights philosopher has to think that there's nothing that he or she has to learn from evolutionary biology. For them, what's taken for granted is, yes, we are everywhere. We have so many numbers. Now, how do we extend rights to all of us? Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what I was saying, that, that from within that philosophy, there is no way of talking about the totality of the world of different species and what's going on there. And really talking about humans as a historical contingency, right? Right. Not an inevitability. No, because but... so the thing is, one, one argument that you, would, you could make as an evolutionary biologist is that 200,000 years, or even three, is nothing in terms of evolutionary changes. Species that evolve at the speed of evolution, big species, I'm not talking about virus. Virus are not species, but say bacteria or things that go through many generations quickly, evolve quickly. So, but things like lions and tigers and us and these bee animals... They take millions of years to evolve. If we had become the chief predators over an evolutionary scale of time, then the fish would have evolved to find out how to escape our dragnets. Sure. It would have been just a slow and steady population pressure, pressure. And the ecosystem would have readjusted to our growth. But we did not. We grew much faster thanks to certain breakthroughs in technology, big brain, our capacity to do things collectively, so we kind of broke the mold. <laughs> and something has happened. It's like te- technology It's like technology has, you know, technology can grow at a very fast rate. Yeah. If you think about the last 30, 40 years, who knows where technology will go. And we benefited, quote unquote, from that process. So 
if you looked at the planet without thinking about rights, without thinking about justice, because in Darwin's book, there's no, there's no justice. Justice is an irrelevant concept. It's an, it's an irrelevant Darwinian, concept, yeah. yeah. If you looked at the planet through that framework, you have a language for talking about the world of species, but you can't bring it into the language of rights and things. And therefore, it's like the quote-unquote truths of evolutionary evolution and the aspirations in political philosophy. They just stare at each other, having nothing to say to each other. You just end up with abominations like eugenics and genocide. Yeah, exactly. So that the problem is if you want that, that's the right-wing version of it. And as I was saying that even people who say that uh, American indigenous, the Native Americans and the American Indians or Australian Aboriginals, or the tribal groups here and there had the, the real wisdom, and we should live, we should try and live by those wisdoms. They can't guarantee that we can feed 7 billion people. The situation is quite different now. Yeah, that yeah. we can scale all those. I mean, I actually agree that there's a lot of wisdom, but whether that wisdom can be scaled up to service 7 billion, 9 billion, 12 billion people, we don't know. Um, so this can be scary too. <laughs> you know, it sounds like good intention. So that's what uh, so I was saying in a lecture the other day, probably you were not there, that, that what we are faced with is a predicament where as humans, we cannot not wish other humans to have the rights that we enjoy. But at the same time, our numbers have grown and that also has some consequences. And how to combine our thinking about those consequences and our thinking about rights without some kind of optimistic leap of faith, mm-hmm. either in technology or just sheer faith in human ingenuity, uh, we don't know how to combine them. We need to acknowledge that there's a predicament we are facing and to reflect that predicament in our thinking. So which disciplines are most responsible for that, reflect, for, for reflecting that? The predicament, I think, is better reflected in disciplines that take a longer view of uh, human development and put humans in the context of the history of life on the planet. Mm-hmm and mainly geology and biology. They speak of the predicament with more ease, uh, not moral ease, but with more great concern. But but they're used to talking about species coming, going, uh, dominating. They have a language. I guess the Anthropocene is the attempt to bring that language into the humanities as well, into, but into when, anthropology. But when, when we try to bring into anthropology or into humanities, then it, it meets the language of rights, mm-hmm. you know, of duties, responsibilities. And sometimes the predicament is not, then it gets lost and not acknowledged enough. So this is a call to action. Call this, to action this, for this collision between rights and... Uh, it's called to action to people who want to think about the predicament. Otherwise, human beings will act. I mean, will act negatively, positively. You know, we'll always be acting. Well, I'm an academic. I never quite call people call on people to act, right. only to think. Only to think. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, and a call to think, and act but only very carefully i want to thank you very very much thank for taking the you. time Thanks for appreciate having it me on this program yeah. okay. that was it me and depesh chakrabarty Today's episode was produced by me, Ian Pollock, with help from Jody Lee Tremboth, Julia Brown, and Simon Theobald. Our executive producer is me, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, all the other familiar places. And please don't forget to leave us a rating and a review, your likes, dislikes, 
It helps people find the show, and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. The latest post on the blog is called Living and Ing with Acronyms. It's a response to Dennis Altman's call to rethink LGBTI by friend of the pod, former podcast guest Annie McCarthy. It takes on the false equivalence between desire, behavior, identity, and the search for queer community. Check it out. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything you want to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. There's a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>